moment that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. So the past like four weeks has been absolutely incredibly insane. There's been so much that's happened. Um, I'm not even sure where to begin. I started with a new job in mid-August uh, as a sales manager for a small house cleaning company. Uh, two weeks after I started the job, I slipped in a freak mopping accident. It's one of those butterfly effect type of situations and broke my femur, like a big time broke it. Like first time I've really broken a bone, I've broken some fingers and toes, but never an actual like bone. And I did it right. Um, and so I'm currently in a wheelchair and will have to be in some sort of physical therapy and recovery probably for the next uh, month and a half or so. I'm not sure how soon I'll be able to actually put weight on this uh, leg. I've got a rod and some pins, so I'm the bionic woman in the making as well. And then a week after that, my mom let me know that my aunt, who lived in New Orleans and had been there during the hurricane that just passed through, uh, that knocked out all the electricity, had passed away due to heat exhaustion because of not having AC, and she had some she had some immune disorder issues and and as such. And and that was a big, it was kind of a big hit for me because she was pretty big part of like my young life and definitely was really interactive with my daughter when my daughter was young and so there's a lot of like history there and um, unfortunately because of the situation I, I'm, I'm not able to go out to New Orleans at this time to participate in any of the gatherings and memorials but luckily my mom and my grandfather are there and then uh, the day after I found out that uh, my aunt had passed away the job that I had started, decided to let me go. I wasn't the kind of manager they were looking for. It, it was okay. You know, um, I agreed. I It wasn't uh, the kind of management I generally like or am particularly good at. It was, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't the, as good a match as uh, we thought it was at the beginning. But, you know, that's life. Sometimes things happen. So it's been a wild amount of time, you know, I'm three weeks now post-op. Oh, because I had to have complete surgery on my leg. Um, I'm doing well as far as the doctors saying the bone is healing well, and I'm doing a good job of um, regaining some of my range of motion. But I'm spending a lot of time sitting and watching TV, playing on my stupid phone. It's hard because I, it, I can only sit for so long as in general. I'm not a sit and do nothing kind of person. So I'm getting a little stir crazy, just a little bit. One of the things that I started watching about a week ago, actually I had watched this show a few years back, a couple years back, I'm not sure exactly. I think I was still in California, so it might've been as much as five years back, was the um, Leah Remini, I think it's called The Aftermath or something like that, but she's talking about her, she's interviewing folks from Scientology and talking about her experience and really kind of shedding a light on this really, I, I don't know what the right word is. I mean, obviously cult is, is a good word, but it's a very manipulative. And I mean, even 
their response to everything, the fact that they never got on and have spoken against this and every all of the letters that they have sent or press releases that they've given on people that they post on the show, you can go look them up online too if you like, are all very, um, it's just, it's really interesting. They, they, they definitely have like, the word I'm looking for is like, malice but it's that's not the right word they they're 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 not good they're i think they're it's an evil cult to be honest with you and so uh, this started my wheels spinning and i definitely have had an interest in cults throughout my life and you know and for different reasons um i remember back in my early 20s when i lived in downtown san jose there used to be a used bookstore down there that i went to often um because i've always been kind of a bookworm and i remember buying a book about cults at, at the Twice Ride Books, which was the name of the store. Um, when I was on my road trip this spring, I stopped in Waco, Texas at the Davidian Ranch and um, looked, you know, kind of got into the history of that a little bit and, and bought the book that was on sale by, I can't remember her name, I think it's Carol something, which is uh, in all honesty is not a well-written book and it's been hard for me to work all the way through it. She makes some interesting points, but the way that she's put it together is just too much for me to like really dig into it and it's hard to follow. But there are, is some interesting information that she provides in it. And, you know, I, I've, I think that one of the reasons this may have piqued my current interest is that I am kind of in a vulnerable state right now. I've had a lot go on after a year and a half of being unemployed. I've traveled around the country. I have now had a serious injury. Um, the work thing, the job not working out is a minor, it, you know, it kind of can mess with your confidence and some of that a little bit, but in all honesty, it's not a, it's not a huge like bat to my psyche or my emotional state. Not, not nearly as much as not being able to walk or losing my, my aunt has been, you know, so, but I am, you know, a little bit in an emotional and physical vulnerable state. And I'm looking around at kind of what's going on in this country today and the things I'm seeing on social media in particular and the things I'm seeing friends post. And I'm, I feel like there's like two main cults happening right now. There's the cult of the woke and there's the cult of the crazies or the right wing fanatics or whatever, you know, you know, but it's the idea is either you are in the progressive house or you are in the, the right wing house. And so much so that somebody actually the other day assumed that I was a Republican, which I thought was hilarious. Like, why would you assume I'm a Republican? Because I don't agree necessarily with the, what the mainstream media is saying. That's a far cry from being a Republican, in my opinion or being even concerned. She was, she's like, you're conservative though, right? And I'm like, yeah, I have some conservative ideas, no doubt, but I'm a pretty hardcore traditional liberal when it comes to like life in general. So I, it, it was a little baffling to me, like how she jumped to that conclusion. I'm gonna talk about some cults and I've found some really good clips. I have, a, it looks like I've got two, four, six, eight, I feel like are pretty good resources that kind of give some ideas. So we're going to look a little bit into what cults are, look a little bit into how mass media and cults work, and look a little bit into something called mass psychosis, which, you know, has been used by cults and also by a tyrannical leadership. We're going to look into this and I'm going to have a few questions at the end, I think, um, that I might pose to you or things to think about. But I figured let's start with what is a cult? And I'm, I'm going to give you a multiple different um, views on this. 
you're, this is going to be really clip heavy. And I think, you know, there'll be a little bit interjection in between clips, kind of setting them up and maybe uh, voicing what I caught in them. But uh, this is going to be a really clip-heavy episode with a lot of information. And let's see where we end up. Join me as we begin. What is a cult? When people hear the word cult, a certain image tends to burst into their brain. Brainwashed devotees worshipping a crazed narcissist and willing to sacrifice anything for them. While Jonestown, Heaven's Gate and the Solar Temple have given cults a violent reputation, most cults tend to keep a much lower profile. Cults are everywhere. There's probably a cult in your town, and the tricks they use to lure people in aren't complicated, but rather tried and tested social manipulation tactics that anyone can fall for. So what is a cult? How do they trap people? And how do people end up believing that volcano alien ghosts are living on their bodies? That's actually something I want to know too. How do people end up believing that? I don't know if they actually do, but well, I guess that's some sort of part or a meltdown of what the Scientologists believe with their thetans and volcano bodies. Like it, it's been explained a couple times in the episodes. I still find it weird. I don't really understand. Uh, the next clip we're gonna listen to is based on some work by Janja Lalik, who is an international authority on cults and coercion and author and a professor emerita of sociology who focuses on cults, high control groups and abusive relationships, specializing in charismatic authority, power relationships, ideology, coercion and social control. So let's see what her thinking says a cult is. Broadly speaking, a cult is a group or movement with a shared commitment to a usually extreme ideology that's typically embodied in a charismatic leader. And while few turn out as deadly as Jonestown or Heaven's Gate, which ended in a mass suicide of 39 people in 1997, most cults share some basic characteristics. A typical cult requires a high level of commitment from its members and maintains a strict hierarchy, separating unsuspecting supporters and recruits from the inner workings. It claims to provide answers to life's biggest questions through its doctrine along with the required recipe for change that shapes a new member into a true believer. And most importantly, it uses both formal and informal systems of influence and control to keep members obedient, with little tolerance for internal disagreement or external scrutiny. So this is a similar sounding kind of definition. I did think the last point was pretty interesting that a huge part of this particular sort of group or functionality of a group or dysfunctionality of it for that matter is that you can't question it from the inside or from the out if you stand up against it or you ask questions there's a problem uh so the next clip we're going to listen to is based is from a woman whose name is margaret thaler singer she's a prominent figure in the study of undue influence in social and religious context and a proponent of the brainwashing theory of new religious movements uh, this clip was actually put on the internet like in 2004 i think but it's from 1994 we'll listen to a couple clips from her too so what does she think a cult is a cult is a group started by an individual who claims that if you just give almost all or all of your decision making over to him or her they will share with you some old secrets of the past that they've discovered 
or they'll share with you new secrets that they've just discovered. But it's more a cultic relationship in which you, the follower, turn over your decision-making to this person and you surrender and obey in return for them sharing with you their supposed secrets. I think this is a pretty good re like reference of what we traditionally think about cults, but if you broaden that idea into just people in general allowing other people to tell them how to think about stuff, then that, that looks a little bit different. And the next clip we're going to hear is from a gal. Her name is Amanda uh, Montel. She wrote a book. The book's name is Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism. So, And I thought she made an interesting point about the idea of cults and how we look at them today. So let's take a listen to her. Hmm. So you're saying there's a, obviously a clear definition or distinction between someone who's doing Peloton and say uh, Nexium or uh, some of the other cults that have, as you said, have more of a sinister and negative uh, definition. You certainly cannot compare the two. However, trickily, there is no hard and fast definition for what makes something a destructive cult. Um, scholars have tried to come up with a list of criteria that definitively distinguishes a cult from a religion, from another kind of social group, and they've never been able to agree. Um, and for this reason, the word cult has become so subjective and so sensationalized that a lot of experts don't even use it, at least not formally. Um, they tend to get more specific talking about um, fringe religions, alternative religions, if that is what they're talking about. Um, otherwise, it can be helpful to hedge, talk about cult-like groups or cultish groups. Um, certainly, nobody likes to be told that they're in a cult. <laughs> I guess I should have prefaced this by saying that this was an interview like on a TV show, and I thought it was really condescending. The guy, and, and I left it in there, starts out the question by like giving a hmm to the last answer she gave. But then she kind of laughs at the end, like nobody wants to be in a cult, huh? or wants to be said they're in a cult, huh? so we just avoid using that word, what? But I think that she's right on some level. I think that that word is thrown around and used uh, freely, and even though there are, are some kind of like understood and accepted ideas of what makes a cult there's definitely it doesn't seem like there's a hard fast rule we've already heard several different definitions and there's kind of a little bit of different nuance to each of them and it kind of depends on what angle they're looking at this perception from and so i listened to or i watched a video um i guess netflix has a series called exposed they did one on cults and they talk about kind of the definite defining characteristics of a cult and i thought that might be interesting Groups called cults, led by charismatic leaders with extreme beliefs and fanatic followers, have existed in almost every country across the globe. But the scale of destruction at Jonestown gave the word cult a new horrifying connotation and drove social scientists in the United States to publish research, attempting to define what these destructive groups had in common. They settled on three main characteristics. A cult is a group or a social movement that's led by a charismatic leader uh, who is authoritarian and who demands to be revered as a godlike figure. The second key element of a cult. The group has some form of indoctrination program, uh, sometimes called thought reform. Or mind control. There is exploitation, uh, either sexual, financial, some type of exploitation of the member. But there's a small problem with this definition of a cult. 
It's a value judgment more than it is a, a functional word. Every prophet of every major religion can be considered a charismatic leader. In fact, the biggest joke in religious studies is that cult plus time equals religion. Cult comes from the Latin cultus, meaning to till or cultivate, and in antiquity was used to describe the sacrifices, offerings, and monuments built to cultivate favor with the gods. In time, it came to mean any unorthodox religion. So I think it's interesting that idea of cult came from the, uh, the concept of cultivating a relationship with some sort of deity or god or, and has now turned into basically any unorthodox religion, as he said. And the, the cult book that I bought you know, all those years ago had things like Judaism in there and, you know, Jehovah's Witness and Scientology and Christi or Christian science. And it certainly had lots of things that I agreed were cultish in nature, um, but also had things that I wasn't, uh, wouldn't, I don't think Judaism is a cult or... You know, basically the idea in this book was anything that wasn't Roman Catholic was a cult. So it was it was a different book, but it does question if everything's a cult to start out with and then becomes a religion, there's some gray area there, right? So let's talk about like who joins a cult and we'll go back to Margaret and she's got some information or ideas about who is susceptible to possibly being indoctrinated into a cult. One of the changes we've seen is that the earliest cults were primarily youth cults in which the youth were recruited in then put out on the street soliciting funds and more members. Then as some of the uh, other cults sprung up and developed, they then started selling courses to adults, to people who are working, and in recent times have started selling their philosophies and their wares to the elderly. So that there's been a change across time as to who, who has been recruited by cults. I think this is an interesting point, is that the idea of who can be attracted or recruited has changed over time. Because, again, she's from like 1994, so she's talking like, we're, she's looking at this view from 30 years ago. And I wonder if she'd have the same perception today, because it certainly feels like it's changed, especially given kind of the real recent stuff of, of isolation, etc. And in this next clip, we're going to talk about how loneliness is something that is a huge part of why somebody might join a cult. Today, a different kind of threat is driving people to search for new sources of meaning. There's an epidemic of social isolation, so serious it's been recognized as a public health threat in countries around the world. Medical experts believe loneliness is becoming Australia's newest public health crisis. America is in the grips of a loneliness epidemic. The government has appointed a minister for loneliness. I put this clip in here because I found it interesting and also poignant that loneliness is something that we all kind of have, it, particularly in the last like year and a half, two years, have struggled with. I, I feel like most of us on some level have had to deal with the fact that we don't get to interact on the same, with as many people. Some, some do because they live in tight-knit communities, but 
now a lot of us, a lot of people throughout the world, and particularly right now, don't and are relying on social communities. And that's another issue that this show brings up. Let's listen to that. People don't necessarily have a built-in community, be it at the level of family, at the level of church, at the level of neighborhood. As fewer people identify with organized religion and the communal gathering spaces they offer, virtual communities are helping to fill that void. What the internet has done is for the first time in human history, made the definition of community no longer geographically bound. We are finding statistically small, but personally huge groups of like-minded individuals who will reinforce us and reinforce who we are. This has led to a new generation of online leaders who are using their tools of social media to attract fervent virtual followers. I'm pretty sure that we call those folks influencers now. And they, the, you, the YouTube folks and the Twitch folks and the whatever folks all seem to have somewhat of a cult-like kind of following in some ways. I, maybe I'm wrong. And it just seems interesting that we live in a time where you can reach a mass amount of people from sitting in your house and talking on a microphone, much like I'm doing now, and or playing a game or making a video or just posting your opinions on TikTok or whatever, and that we actually call those people who are making a career out of it or we're calling them influencers. That's actually a job title right now is social media influencer, which is wild. But let's take a look back really quick. How does a cult work? It, why why does it work? And I want to start by letting Singer, Margaret Singer, tell us a little bit about what the numbers look like in 1994. In the United States today, it's estimated that there are approximately 5,000 cults. And some of the countries overseas regard cults as among our least desirable exports. At various points in time, it's estimated that as many as 20 million people have been involved at one point or another. That there's about two and a half to three million people at, in these last two decades involved in a cult. The number of cults are growing and the problem of cults is not fading. In fact, there are more cults today than there were 10 years ago. And when we think that the cult not only has an impact on the person that gets into the cult, but it has an impact on all of their family members, so that it is the cult phenomenon is impacting on a large number of people in the world today. And we're talking 30 years ago, or almost 30 years ago. How the, she said it was like so much more even 10 years later. Imagine how much it's changed in the last 30 years. And it begs the question, like, how does this work? How do people get sucked in? And if now we can do it so easily on social media and have these influencers and um, charismatic personalities be leading the way, what, what do they want? What are they looking for? And the next person we're going to listen to is a um, gentleman named Steve Hassan. And Stephen, I'm sorry, Dr. Stephen Alan Hassan. He's an American author, educator, PhD, and a medical health counselor specializing in destructive cults. He had been described by some news media as one of the world's for foremost experts on mind control cults, similar destructive organizations. Apparently, he also belonged at one point to a cult called the Moonies. But let's see what he talks about how the cults work. 
I can tell you as a mental health professional, someone who has been helping people get out of cults and mind control and brainwashing situations for 40 years, constantly people are confused. What is a cult? What is mind control? What is brainwashing? Oh, my, my boss brainwashes me. Oh, advertising brainwashes me. Uh, the government brainwashes me, etc. But what I'm here to say is actually, I want to present a model for you to think about a spectrum from healthy to unhealthy influence. Healthy influence, there's informed consent. You know what you're getting involved with. You know about the person. There's choice. On the destructive side, there's deception. There's manipulation. On, on the healthy side, it respects your free will. It respects your conscience, where the unhealthy side is using guilt manipulation, fear manipulation, and wanting you to become tranced out, obedient slaves. For me, that's a huge thing, right? Like, if you're using negative guilt type of tactics or fear-based type of tactics, or you're being motivated by those type of tactics, that is not a good um, healthy type of interaction. And it certainly is how I would say traditional and current day cults probably are able to entice people or at minimum put them in a situation where they don't even question anything. And the, here's another clip that kind of points out the same thing. In a cult, you are rewarded for good behavior with praise and privileges. But those that behave in the wrong way are shunned and punished. So as the cult is isolating you from your ordinary reality, they provide you with a new and unanimously approved worldview. Now when all or nothing point of view begins to be preached to them. They teach that every single word of the ideology is completely true or none of it is. If you have any doubts, you will be excluded and you will suffer. So one of the things that I, I take away from this idea is that we are going to gravitate towards things that make us feel good, things that are positive reinforcement. And on social media, we certainly get a lot of that, the likes and the comments and the loves and the whatevers and the shares and or the retweets or whatever social platform you're on and whatever type of positive reinforcement. And if you don't agree with them, the fear is, is that you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be told you're stupid. You're going to be minimized or invalidated. And this, to me, creates a, a place where as a society, we're kind of in this, gotten into the space where things don't make sense anymore because folks are contradicting themselves, have one ideology for one topic and a different ideology for a different topic. And it doesn't seem like I can actually have a decent conversation with a lot of people who have a different idea than me because it disintegrates or degenerates into a name calling, questioning of my type of thinking. And here we start to see some of the ideas of around mass psychosis. Government officials and their lackeys in the media can use contradictory reports, nonsensical information, and even blatant lies, as the more they confuse, the less capable will a population be to cope with the crisis and diminish their fear in a rational and adaptive manner. Confusion, in other words, heightens the susceptibility of a dissent into the delusions of totalitarianism. Or as Mirlu explains, logic can be met with logic, while illogic cannot. It confuses those who think straight, 
The big lie and monotonously repeated nonsense have more emotional appeal than logic and reason. While the people are still searching for a reasonable counterargument to the first lie, the totalitarians can assault them with another. He's using the term totalitarianism, and it, it, this is his point that, or the point of this particular episode that I'm playing clips from, but I think that the point is valid. We're constantly being bombarded with one piece of information and then a new piece of information, and then it changes, and then it evolves, and then it grows, and then it's re like we're now we're rebooting and back to some old sounding types of things and it becomes very confusing and you can't even argue. I'm I'm busy just trying to figure out if the first piece of information is correct, valid. I'm trying to dig into it and understand it. But by the time I even get there, that that's gone. Nobody's even talking about it anymore. We're on to the next. But there's there's a reason that's happening because there's a there's something about being validated by a large group of people that is very attractive to us as people. That is a, is an essential part of who we are as a person. Most of us, I'm not saying every single person needs to be validated. Uh, there's plenty of people out there that don't. I mean, we're all individuals. But in general, humans have a desire to be accepted and validated. And Singer talks a little bit about uh, how the group works. Most cultic groups differ from altruistic and educational groups in our society because the primary purpose of cultic groups is to gather more members and to gather more power and money for the cult leader so that it's primarily the promotion of the cult leader rather than the growth and development of the followers. And I'm not going to call out any of the group leaders because in all honesty, there are these type of people on the that are in the mainstream media narrative and are all over social media and we are talking about them constantly. And uh, I can think of names that both sides would be pointing to as offenders of this kind of behavior where the group think type of messaging that's coming out of these influencers or leaders or folks in power are using and actually in some ways utilizing to make us think in a different way about our world today. And I would say that a common theme that I keep hearing is uh, rebuilding or building back better. Funny enough, that has some foundation in cult thinking or the way that cults behave. The Roman Empire referred to Judaism as a cult. Some say that certain versions of Islam are cults. Nowadays, most scholars prefer the word uh, new religious movement or NRM. And many arose not to exploit their followers, but to help them survive in the face of an external threat. The collective's very sense of self is under attack by the world. And the only way to salvage one's identity is to come together under the leadership of this charismatic authority and to rebuild from scratch. I don't know about you, but that's terrifying that we are, the, the idea that we have in our heads. And this is a messaging I'm hearing, if I'm being honest. We have to rebuild, we have to rethink, we have to build back better, I've already said that. But th this is a prominent messaging that's out there that like we what we've done is wrong and how we've done it is wrong. And I, I think it's scary and also a little telling. And here's a little PSA that 
might be helpful for you to start thinking about some of the questions that you may be asking yourself as you're listening to this. I'm, I certainly had some have some questions that I'm asking myself. Let's let's see if any of these things, what's the word, are, are relatable to some of the things that you're experiencing. The eternal fascination with cults stems from the mystery of how their leaders exert such complete control. What they're using is basic social psychology. They're using everyday influence and control techniques. So as a public service, we present to you seven elements that social scientists say can lead to indoctrination into a cult. Number one, you're going through a transition, perhaps a difficult one. When you're in that vulnerable state, uh, you're going to be more open to trying something. Maybe, you know, pull a thing off a, on a bulletin board that says, come to this yoga class. Which is all part of the soft sell. Once you take that first step and go to that first meeting or talk or meditation group or Bible study, recruiters can work on you and invite you back, and, and it basically is a process from there. This is the first step toward the creation of a new reality. Over time, you're going to become uh, more and more enveloped in this, what I call a self-sealing system. Until your most important relationship is with the dear leader. You're in a group that has found the answer, and you have this leader who is the only leader, who is the only one who can take you on this path. And everything else and everybody else is wrong. Wait, so everybody else is wrong? Every other idea is wrong? Every other idea is bad? Does this sound familiar to anybody else besides me? Which the leader will often solidify by creating an external enemy. This means that you're going to psychologically run to the cult leader. You become in a perpetual state of denial of your own reasoning power. You don't reason anymore. People in this state of cognitive dissonance, they're going to choose over and over and over for the cult or the cult leader. Which brings us to the key way cult leaders scale up their control, simple peer pressure. This fundamental human desire to be a part of a group can override even our own perception of reality. In 1951, social psychologist Solomon Ash demonstrated this by placing several students in a room. All but one were in on the experiment. Your task is a very simple one. You're to look at the line on the left and determine which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. Two. 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 Uh, two. Uh, did you hear where the guy said, uh, two? 75% of those tested would end up agreeing with the majority even when their responses were obviously false. It's this pressure to conform that the cult leader uses to control members, all to serve the whims of a likely sociopathic narcissist. I'm not a huge fan of labeling people like sociopaths or narcissists, but when people just say that they know shit or are definitive experts or have some knowledge on what we are talking about without being able to provide any evidence or facts or resources as to where that information has come from or how they came to this belief that is somewhat sociopathic and also maybe a little psychotic and maybe a result of some not right thinking and maybe they've had a psychotic break and maybe we need to look at what that actually is. Silvano Arietti, one of the 20th century's foremost authorities on schizophrenia, explains the psychogenic steps that lead to madness. 
Firstly, there is the phase of panic, when the patient starts to perceive things in a different way, is frightened on account of it, appears confused, and does not know how to explain the strange things that are happening. The next step is what Ariadne calls a phase of psychotic insight, whereby an individual succeeds in putting things together by devising a pathological way of seeing reality which allows him to explain his abnormal experiences. The phenomenon is called insight because the patient finally sees meaning and relations in his experiences. But the insight is psychotic because it is based on delusions, not on adaptive and life-promoting ways of relating to whatever threats precipitated the panic. The delusions, in other words, allow the panic-stricken individual to escape from the flood of negative emotions, but at the cost of losing touch with reality, and for this reason, Arietti says that a psychotic break can be viewed as an abnormal way of dealing with an extreme state of anxiety. So a couple quick notes. Arietti is um, basically regarded as one of the world's foremost authorities on schizophrenia, and he received his master's degree from University of Pisa in Italy, uh, which apparently is where he lived and, or was born and died. He was born in 1914 and died in 1981 in New York City. So we're, you know, we're looking at some older thinking, definitely prior to any current day internet or technology in 81 none of that really existed i mean there was the apple computer i could make say hello a thousand times but not nearly what we've got today as far as technology is concerned and i also thought it was interesting that a psychotic break in his definition was just an abnormal reaction to life i mean he said it differently but that's how i took it if a panic-triggering flood of negative emotions in a weak and vulnerable individual can trigger a psychotic break, then a mass psychosis can result when a population of weak and vulnerable individuals is driven into a state of panic by threats real, imagined, or fabricated. But as delusions can take many forms, and as madness can manifest in countless ways, the specific manner in which a mass psychosis unfolds will differ based on the historical and cultural context of the infected society. I'm putting in these clips because I think that it's valid to note that we have some definite, like, coordinated and efforts to align our thinking on one side or the other. I think that there are folks on the more progressive, what's currently being defined as the democratic side that have a clear messaging. And I think that there's some efforts on what I would consider the more conservative or traditional and now being referred to as the Republican side. Although I don't know that those definitions really are fair because a lot of people are just registered under a party simply because they align with an important belief system with that party like abortion rights or gun rights or whatever whatever the alignment is but the reality is is these parties are basically the same and using the same tactics to try to make their base make their group make a create an environment where their group and their folks are all in all the way 100% and I think that they're using something called a think reform or thought reform or also sometimes called brainwashing and Singer kind of lays it out right here. The term brainwashing is a popular term describing what's classically called a thought reform program 
And all those terms mean that a person or an organization has put into place a coordinated program of coercive influence and behavior control. See, the word cult refers to the relationship between the followers and the leader, in which the leader is all-powerful. And then the way the leaders, as we say in psychology, shape the behavior, make the person adopt the policies and attitudes, is done through a thought reform program. And it's hard not to wonder how the media and the way that we absorb and intake information could be, I guess, could be a concern given the fact that this type of tactic has been used a lot and is very productive and works. Exactly how this media is consumed changes across cultures and age groups. For example, my grandmother gets a lot of her information about current events through TV and newspapers, but I primarily get this information online. And when we look at mass media, we can look at the role it plays in our society through different sociological perspectives. So according to the functionalist view, one of the most important functions of mass media is to provide entertainment. So it's meant to occupy our leisure time. But the functionalist view also says that mass media can also act as an agent of socialization and an enforcer of social norms. It presents a standardized view of society and provides a collective experience for members of that society. That is a lot. So it entertains us, it uh, creates social norms, it uh, enforces social norms. What else is mass media doing? Let's find out. Mass media also functions as a promoter of consumer culture. At the turn of the century, the average U.S. child saw 20,000 commercials a year on TV. And that doesn't include ads on the radio or billboards or signs in front of stores announcing 50% off sales. And it's only increased from there. And it's not necessarily clear what kind of an impact this might have on the next generation. If you've ever heard me go into one of my consumerism rants, you know that I have a particular disdain for the amount of consumeristic culture or consumerism culture that our media forces literally down our throat. Buy this, eat this. If you want a happy life, you'll have these things. The consumerism level is out of control. And 20,000 commercials, I don't know if that's daily or yearly or the kids that were born at the turn of the century, that would be my daughter. I don't know exactly what that 20 whatever number is. But the reality is, is that mass media is mostly entertainment, but it is also definitely creating some cultural phenomenons around how we buy, how we consume, how we think, what we believe. And if you don't believe that, let's go back to Stephen Hassan and see what he has to think about our current day internet viability. And I just want to talk for a minute about just how much the internet is being manipulated now. When when the internet began, it was the greatest thing for people like myself, former members, who were trying to share our knowledge and experience with others. We could disseminate the information. And, and, and cults like Scientology and the Moonies and such, you know, were trying to suppress information. But it was a wonderful thing. Now things are buried. Search engine manipulation is taking place. 
Wikipedia has been uh, co-opted, unfortunately, to, to, to the chagrin of so many folks. Fake websites, false news. And what's coming down the pike is incredible positive things can come out of the internet, but also incredible programming opportunities for despots and dictators and cult leaders and traffickers. I thought it was an interesting point that the people who were trying to restrict information at the beginning were the people who were being basically manipulative cult leaders like Scientology and etc. That originally when the internet started, it was a tool that could be used for um, dispensing or at least making available information and uh, they, they were using to help people who were getting trapped into these types of mind thinking. And all of a sudden... Those aren't the people who are restricting information anymore. I mean, we just don't even, you, I'm sure they still are to, and suppressing some of the stories about them, but we're literally being censored today by social media platforms themselves and being labeled. And it's interesting that once upon a time, the internet, the people who were trying to shut it down were folks who were lying and deceptive. And today, we have a bunch of people trying to shut down stuff they say is lying and deceptive. And yet, feels like, to me at least, that the information that they're letting through is more propaganda-oriented than actual fact or information-oriented. And I think that there is some legitimacy to, like, the idea that we are creating a mass psychosis type of situation where our thinking is being shook up or disrupted and there's some folks who agree with me. Modern technology, explains Mirlu, teaches man to take for granted the world he is looking at. He takes no time to retreat and reflect. Technology lures him on, dropping him into its wheels and movements. No rest, no meditation, no reflection, no conversation. The senses are continually overloaded with stimuli. Man doesn't learn to question his world anymore. The screen offers him answers, ready-made. But there is a further step the would-be totalitarian rulers can take to increase the chance of a totalitarian psychosis. And this is to isolate the victims and to disrupt normal social interactions. I left that last bit in there, including the totalitarian. I, I don't necessarily think that there's a poignant or malicious or purposeful totalitarian regime that is trying to take control right now. I think that what's happening is that there's some ideas out there that are becoming more popular and definitely more acceptable and appealing to a large portion of folks who consider themselves liberal-minded type of folks. However, it's there's a question as to whether or not what's happening is healthy. And if people are unable to talk to each other or have conversations or really interact with each other, all of a sudden we're being guided by the information that we're interacting with, which is mostly in some social media form. It, I, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm, I feel pretty confident that a vast majority of United States citizens have some sort of social media. And if you have a social media account, whichever one it is, there's an algorithm behind that that has some, a vested interest, money-wise, 
in what you're paying attention to. And we're going to go back to Amanda Montel. Uh, and she says something kind of interesting that I think is valid. We've certainly seen the rise of a QAnon and more and more people uh, beginning to follow that sort of political ideology. What are your thoughts on watching, watching this group grow? Mm, yeah, I think the pandemic has really heightened the cultishness that already existed in our culture. Again, during times of turbulence, when we increasingly mistrust the institutions that are supposed to provide us with answers and closure and support, especially during a crisis like the COVID pandemic, um, during all of these social movements, we tend to look to these groups that can provide us with those things, with answers, with closure. I watched the video of this young gal and she's young and her idea that um, we're looking to closure and answers I think is legit and I think that she's making an interesting point. Um, and I say this jokingly, but I also mean it sort of seriously. The algorithm is the ultimate cult leader. The algorithm on social media will send us down rabbit holes, encouraging us to believe only more and more extreme versions of what we already do. I think the word algorithm is starting to have some negative connotations because it's being used to explain everything about social media. However, I think there is uh, something to the idea that we get sucked into the social media echo chamber and rabbit hole and or both that appeals to us. And that's why you see the formation of so many of these cultish groups online. You know, we think of cults as these groups that exist on, you know, remote compounds somewhere where everybody's dancing around in flower crowns, but they can really form to various degrees on the internet um, with language as the ultimate power tool. And if language is the ultimate power tool, then who is determining what language is being put out there? Uh, let's see how mass media works on that front. Conflict theory uses the term gatekeeping to describe the process by which a small number of people and corporations control what material is being presented on the media. It describes how information, so things that appear in our newspapers, the stories that are made into movies, what TV shows are turned into pilots. It describes how these things move through a series of gates before they can reach the public. In some countries, this might be controlled primarily by the government, but for others, it's decided primarily by large media corporations. This clip was taken from something called, uh, from a YouTube thing called Mass Media that was recorded in 2015. So they're not talking about algorithms. However, imagine taking that same kind of thinking where there's gatekeeping into the news we hear, the movies that are made, the TV shows we watch, and applying that to the internet today. And how that could play out for diversity and op outside opinions or oppositional opinions or just different ways of thinking. How does that work? The conflict theory also describes how mass media often reflects the dominant ideology giving time and space, or privileging, certain social, economical, and political interests, while sometimes actively limiting other views. The people who make the choices about what media is produced, the gatekeepers, are predominantly white, male, and wealthy. And as a result, stories representing the views of racial minority groups, women, LGBT individuals, and working class people are typically underrepresented. And because of this divide, portrayals of minority groups can often be stereotyped. 
were guided by unrealistic generalizations about a certain group of people. And while some corporations have taken the steps to try to improve this, they sometimes take it in the wrong direction, which results in tokenism instead of actual diversity, or cases where a single minority member is added to a TV show or movie as a stand-in for that entire group. One could certainly argue that we have created an environment where the desire to have diversity is being watered down by making sure we have what I would call a phony level of diversity, where we're just putting voices out there, we're putting, making sure we have the right kind of gender, the right kind of sexual identity, the right kind of ethnicity, the right kind of race. And I'm not sure that we are creating an environment that embraces true diversity. In fact, I think that we're softening this kind of thinking and actually pumping up the us versus them and leaving our radical ideas of how this country was started. But one country in particular welcomed new religions with open arms from its very founding. Going back well into the 1600s, the American colonies had developed a reputation as a safe harbor for religious radicals. And there was one small patch of America that was especially seized by this new religious fervor, a section of land stretching from Albany to Buffalo, known as the Burned Over District. The Burned Over District became the birthplace of Mormonism, of Seventh-day Adventism, of spiritualism. And a wide range of other social, political, and religious movements as well. Wherever you encounter religious openings, you inevitably encounter political openings as well. So if we're always living in an environment where our religious and political kind of thinking is going to be connected, that arguably can lead to a place where we can be easily manipulated just as something that could actually happen. In this video, we are going to explore the most dangerous of all psychic epidemics, the mass psychosis. A mass psychosis is an epidemic of madness, and it occurs when a large portion of a society loses touch with reality and descends into delusions. Such a phenomenon is not a thing of fiction. Two examples of mass psychoses are the American and European witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries, and the rise of totalitarianism in the 20th century. So basically, we can fall into a mass psychosis with information being pumped at us at a high voltage rate of like social justice, manipulation, propaganda. Let's explore that. <laughs> the search for alternative forms of meaning. These things have at their back a very powerful appeal. And sometimes people start out, even the leaders themselves, believing in that appeal. But there is a break in human nature in which idealism can very easily turn into authoritarianism. The same religious tolerance that allowed the country to thrive made Americans particularly susceptible to manipulation. Even Father Devine was accused of taking advantage of his followers financially, including convincing them to buy him a hotel and bilking a woman out of her inheritance. And one man was watching all this and taking notes, Jim Jones. So Jim Jones, he studied, you know, Father Divine to see how Father Divine set up his community. Jones's desire to learn from Divine was even immortalized in a 1980 TV miniseries. That's James Earl Jones playing Father Divine. But how could you sustain such a movement? And how did my son Moses sustain his flock? 
But the cost? Ask, and you shall receive, my son. Ask, and you shall receive. Jim Jones took some of the appeals to social justice that were intrinsic to Father Divine's message, and he used them first to attract people and later to manipulate people. And it's when that manipulation becomes destructive that a group becomes a cult, according to social scientists. It's really not about the belief system per se. It's about the behaviors of the group and the ways in which it uses uh, various methods of influence and control to manipulate and exploit the members. For me, one of the scariest things about this kind of thinking is, is we keep using these words like cults and we keep using this idea that there's some kind of like extrasensory big push or I'm using the wrong words, but there has to be some charismatic person in order for this to be happening. But a lot of these behaviors are happening on a greater level, which is you can look on social media today and see that there's this kind of like us versus them. You've got the Republicans talking smack about the Democrats and the Democrats talking smack about the Republicans. And it's them over there that are bad, no matter who you are or what side you're on, that's how you're viewing it. But that's kind of what a cult does too. They create a bad guy. And like, here's an example of how that works. All kinds of horrible names are given to non-cult members. Systemites, unclean, or satanic, for example. This creates an us versus them mindset. Now, any criticism of the cult is seen as an attack. You are in the cult or you are an enemy. There is no in between. Now, their whole existence is the group. If they leave, they are nothing. And joining the outside world is seen as a very dangerous idea. Many cults preach that anyone that leaves will probably die or be living on the streets in no time. Do you hear it? I can totally see how this works, right? Like somebody come, I see it on the con, I see it on people posting on Facebook all the time. That's my, the big social media I'm on. But I'm hearing it in lots of different ways where people are constantly being very protective of their messaging and their side, no matter what. If it's, if you're a Republican, you think bad, or if you're a Democrat, you're this. And, and the, the list goes on and on, and it just keeps happening. And I think that right now we're feeling this big, huge push from particularly a more progressive point of view that we all should be thinking the same way. And that's becoming more and more clear. The social transformation that unfolds under totalitarianism is built upon and sustained by delusions. For only deluded men and women regress to the childlike status of obedient and submissive subjects and hand over complete control of their lives to politicians and bureaucrats. I'm not passing judgment, but there are a lot of people right now that are absolutely doing this, where they are basically just saying the government can make the decisions and should be in charge of making the decisions and should be enforcing those decisions. And I'm sure you don't have to think real hard to come up with a couple examples of messaging you've heard like this. Only a deluded ruling class will believe that they possess the knowledge, wisdom, and acumen to completely control society in a top-down manner. More so than politicians, I think the experts uh, in particular are a category of people who we have just given carte blanche to and allowed them a blank check to do whatever and say whatever and have whatever controls they want because they're the experts.
and only when under the spell of delusions would anyone believe that a society composed of power-hungry rulers on the one hand and a psychologically regressed population on the other will lead to anything other than mass suffering and social ruin. This might be a good point for me to say that I am not by any stretch of the imagination saying that we are currently in this state and have regressed society. But I do think that there is some points that are that you can look at what type of things have been happening around here for the last 20 months or so. And it, I know I've asked myself multiple times, like, how is it that we have allowed ourselves to get to this point of type of thinking where... Censoring is okay even. But what triggers the psychosis of totalitarianism? The mass psychosis of totalitarianism begins in a society's ruling class. The individuals that make up this class, be it politicians, bureaucrats, or crony capitalists, are very prone to delusions that augment their power, and no delusion is more attractive to the power-hungry than the delusion that they can and should control and dominate a society. And here's where I should point out that I think that this kind of leadership, rulers, and politicians capitalist cronies, are very present in our government right now on both sides of the aisle, for sure. I don't care what party you belong to, if you cannot accept the fact that for the most part, the leadership in this country is primarily most important most importantly concerned with getting keeping themselves in office so they can keep their pockets lined, then we have a whole different kind of conversation to have. When a ruling elite becomes possessed by a political ideology of this sort, be it communism, fascism, or technocracy, the next step is to induce a population into accepting their rule by infecting them with the mass psychosis of totalitarianism. This psychosis has been induced many times throughout history, and as Mirlu explains, it is simply a question of reorganizing and manipulating collective feelings in the proper way. The general method by which the members of a ruling elite can accomplish this end is called menticide, with the etymology of this word being a killing of the mind. And as Mirlu further explains, menticide is an old crime against the human mind and spirit, but systematized anew. It is an organized system of psychological intervention and judicial perversion through which a ruling class can imprint their own opportunistic thoughts upon the minds of those they plan to use and destroy. Now, I am not going to say that we are completely in this realm, right? Like I have, I'm, I for sure think that we, there's a, a lot of distance between where we are now and us being completely controlled by our government. I, I don't have a tinfoil hel helmet on. I'm not accusing anybody, but I would like to point out that there is something called a softening up that you generally do. You don't generally go from zero to all the way 100%. Normally, you know, like with any abusive relationship, you work your way in there. Priming a population for the crime of menticide begins with the sowing of fear. When an individual is flooded with negative emotions, such as fear or anxiety, he or she is very susceptible to a descent into the delusions of madness. Threats real, imagined, or fabricated can be used to sow fear, but a particularly effective technique is to use waves of terror. Under this technique, the sowing of fear is staggered with periods of calm, but each of these periods of calm is followed by the manufacturing of an even more intense spell of fear, and on and on the process goes. Or as Mirlu writes, 
Each wave of terrorizing creates its effects more easily after a breathing spell than the one that preceded it because people are still disturbed by their previous experience. Morality becomes lower and lower, and the psychological effects of each new propaganda campaign become stronger. It reaches a public already softened up. This isn't new. I mean, in fact, I know lots of people, if you talk to them or you ask them about current events, they'll tell you, ah, I don't really pay attention to the news. It's all bad. It's all, it's always just bad news. But certainly uh, in the recent past, I mean, this, definitely this past year and a half, but, you know, in the past six years, eight years, I don't know. It seems like there's been this very constant, like, new fear. We've got mosquitoes and killer bees and, uh, you know, kid thugs and uh, people running wild in this. I mean, it's there's always something to be afraid of. There's always something out there that we should be worried about. We're going to run out of toilet paper. I don't know where it stops, you know, but it does feel like we have been in this process for a while where we have become fearful to the point where we'll do anything, take off our shoes and, you know, throw away our water bottles before we get on a plane so that we feel safe. But is that really helping us be safe? Or is it just a feeding into us allowing ourselves to be programmed? And, you know, what better way to really seal the deal than with a little isolation? When alone and lacking normal interactions with friends, family, and co-workers, an individual becomes far more susceptible to delusions for several reasons. Firstly, they lose contact with the corrective force of the positive example, for not everyone is tricked by the machinations of the ruling elite, and the individuals who see through the propaganda can help free others from the menticidal assault. If, however, isolation is enforced, the power of these positive examples greatly diminishes. So being isolated makes it difficult for you to work through ideas and concepts and information and come up with a real solid, valid idea of how accurate and honest and genuine this information is. And it also prevents you from being around people who may call you on your shit. Right? I mean, don't we all need that once in a while? But another reason that isolation increases the efficacy of menticide is because like many other species, human beings are more easily conditioned into new patterns of thought and behavior when isolated. Or as Mirlu explains with regards to the physiologist Ivan Pavlov's work on behavioral conditioning, Pavlov made another significant discovery. The conditioned reflex could be developed most easily in a quiet laboratory with a minimum of disturbing stimuli. Every trainer of animals knows this from his own experience. Isolation and the patient repetition of stimuli are required to tame wild animals. The totalitarians have followed this rule. They know that they can condition their political victims most quickly if they are kept in isolation. Alone, confused, and battered by waves of terror, a population under an attack of menticide descends into a hopeless and vulnerable state. The never-ending stream of propaganda turns minds once capable of rational thought into playhouses of irrational forces, and with chaos swirling around them and within them, the masses crave a return to a more ordered world. The would-be totalitarians can now take the decisive step. They can offer a way out and a return to order in a world that seems to be moving rapidly in the opposite direction. But all this comes at a price. The masses must give up their freedom and cede control of all aspects of life to the ruling elite. 
They must relinquish their capacity to be self-reliant individuals who are responsible for their own lives and become submissive and obedient subjects. The masses, in other words, must descend into the delusions of the totalitarian psychosis. So mandates and forcing people to stay home and requiring people to put stuff into their body and getting people to bully and guilt other people. And I, I, the list goes on and on of the things that we've seen around this country alone. But if you look around the world, it's even worse of the type of programming that's happening. But do you remember the new normal? That was a big meme about a year ago. The new normal, the new normal. We kept hearing that new normal and now it's build back better. And I don't know exactly where this is going to end or, you know, if we're really heading in this direction, from my perspective, something doesn't sit right. Something doesn't smell right. Something ain't right with the way that things are going in this country. I'm very concerned that there's a cult-like programming that's happening at a larger scale. And that's not the first time that's happened in this world historically. I'm hoping that that's not the way it's heading now. But the reality is, is I've said this before, technology is moving at such a rapid rate that we cannot really understand how it's affecting us long term. We've only had the internet for barely 20 years. And really, it's only been super accessible for the last 10 to 14 to a vast majority of the population. That's a very short time for us to understand the effects that it's having on us. And it's causing us to create a different kind of cult, a different kind of cult leader, a different kind of way that this thinking can get into our brains. And, you know, I thought this was kind of an interesting idea. It's the recording on it's kind of wonky. It's one of those reader things. But I thought it's uh, the definition of cult of personality. And I thought it was something interesting to think about as we close this up today. A cult of personality arises when an individual uses mass media propaganda, or other methods to create an idealized, heroic, and at times worshipful image, often through unquestioning flattery and praise. Sociologist Max Weber developed a tripartite classification of authority. The cult of personality holds parallels with what Weber defined as charismatic authority. A cult of personality is similar to divinization, Christian, except that it is established by mass media and propaganda usually by the state, especially in totalitarianism or sometimes authoritarianism states. I could say that mass media and particularly influencers using words like that is a definite sign that what is happening with our media consumption and the way that we're getting our information and the way that we are latching on to personalities like Fauci or Trump, if that's your side, or Alex Jones, if that's your side. I mean, the, the idea is that if we are putting somebody in such a high pedestal that we never question what they say, we never ask ourselves, is what they're doing right? Is Or or if they're only bad and everything they say is bad and we never give them any credit. Like, I see this on both sides. Like, I have problems with all three of the people I mentioned for multitudes of reasons. But that doesn't mean I think they're all bad just because I have concerns with a lot about 
who they are and what they've done over the recent history. And but and I'm and there's tons more out there. And what we're doing is we're creating this idea, at least in my from my perspective, we're creating this idea that these people, because they're in the spotlight, because they're on the news, because we hear them, we see them, they're quotable, they're being clipped, they're being they're people that we uh, other people are also listening to and and valuing that that means that they must be right and they must be good and I just the I ha- it gives me pause for concern and to think you know and ask some questions and I I guess one of the first questions that this whole journey of an episode brought up for me is like are we using the word cult or like are we using that idea or word wrong today like when you say that word are you thinking back to the old times where people went and lived out in the desert and little hippie communes because that's not how cults are working today take a look at Scientology that thing is definitely not hidden I mean they do I guess have some areas that are locked away in the desert and are more like prisons than but anyways if you haven't watched the Leah Remini thing that there's a lot of that that thing's wild. If you are a Scientologist uh, and you've listened this far, I definitely encourage you to look into some of the stuff going on in that uh, religion slash cult. And then, you know, the next question that I can't help asking is, are we seeing mass media use more cult indoctrinating tactics and pumping up our ego so that they can feed us, keeping us fearful so that they can feed us the propaganda and I just when I listen to what the mainstream media is doing the words that they're saying the constant use of fluid language where they're not even really reporting news anymore they're just reading scripts and making sure they cover talking points and giving opinions when they shouldn't be if they're delivering a news story there's just so much going on in the way that news is being presented today particularly um if you watch it like in on television or whatever i read most of mine because it's easier to cut through the bullshit just from my personal opinion and the last question that i've been asking myself a lot for i would say probably the last i don't know five years six years but it's definitely gotten even more like in my face recently is how often am I opting not to voice my opinion because I'm around a certain group of people? Like how often has that happened to me? And if I'm being honest, it happens It happens frequently. And then I'm not talking about like at work, not talking about the standard stuff. I'm talking about like people I love who I don't generally filter myself around. Now I have to. Now I have to think about what I'm saying. And not not necessarily because I don't want to get into a fight, but also because that, you know, some people have some very, very uh, emotional attachments to the ideas and thoughts and, and beliefs that they have that if you even start to rub up against them, it, it you can see it visibly bothers them. And I, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or make anybody feel upset because I have a difference of opinion. I'm just, you know, so I, I'm finding that I'm, Oftentimes censoring myself, which is a topic I've brought up before, but isn't that how this starts? If I if I willingly stop saying how I feel, if I willingly stop saying the things that I'm thinking, if I willingly stop expressing my opinions because people might label me a racist or they might say I'm, you know, I'm stupid. I have I have been called the the amount of times I have been called thoughtless and a murderer and a racist in online interactions in the past year and a half is astronomical. 
I, I, just out of control for me because I'm just like every time it comes up I'm like I mean not to mention idiot and dummy and all the other ways you can call somebody stupid which I've definitely been called that like that's that's been the number one thing I'm definitely as far as anybody on the internet whose opinion I don't agree with is concerned I'm stupid just so you know that's me and the uh, the point is is that this type of thinking where you can't even hear somebody else's opinion Anything outside of the thinking you believe in is bad and should be shut down. If they don't say what we believe, misinformation. We're putting all kinds of labels on things that are ways of making an us versus them, creating an ideology that we are right and everybody else is wrong. I mean, there's all kinds of things that feel very cultish to me in the way when I, when I've, with this ones I've studied, whether it's been, you know, cause I've, I've definitely read plenty on cults. I've read multiple books, Helter Skelter. And, and the one thing that is always pretty prevalent is that the group gets into a think that they're right. And Whoever doesn't agree with them is wrong. And I I highly encourage you to take a look at how cults work a little bit more. I mean, if I mean I obviously put quite a bit in here, but if you want to dig deeper, you want to get some more anecdotal stories, there's plenty of them out there where you can hear people's firsthand experience and what they went through. And it it's not hard to make that leap and transition from an individual type of programming that happens in the indoctrination and uh, brainwashing stage and transition that into what we're seeing a lot of, or a lot more of at least, when it comes to the messaging and the way that media and news and information is being dispensed to us. And so that's what I got to say today. What do you have to say? We'll talk to you soon. Take it easy now.